Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Hey everybody, thanks for, for tuning in. So this episode comes at the request of quite a few people that have been messaging me. It's going to be a uh, single issue uh, episode. It's taken me a little while to just sort of like watch this story unfold in the news in British Columbia, gather my thoughts, uh, get something together that's logical uh, for you that has some background research and stuff behind it. Uh, with the intent, uh, I want to give you information here, um, some of my perspectives, what I know about uh, how things work in BC. And and this is information for you to, to make up your own mind what you want to do with it. So the topic at, at hand here is a big hot issue that's flying around in British Columbia right now about the BC government amending the British Columbia Lands Act, the statute, uh, and the narrative is they're doing that to give First Nations veto powers over Crown land in BC. So I'm going to unfold some layers here for you. Um, it's going to be a, a bit of an episode, so hopefully you appreciate it. So let's go back in history here. Um, this whole thing centers around an area of law in Western Canada called the land question. The question is, whose land is it? British Columbia, whose land is it? Whose fish is it? Whose wildlife is it? Whose forests? Uh, you know, it's called the land question. So we all know the story. Go back hundreds and hundreds of years. Europeans landed in North America landed in Canada, they planted the flag and called it their own, the new land in the name of the king. Then they started to develop this country uh, and the colonies then, you know, became part of confederation and the dominion of Canada. And then eventually we ended up with Canada. We all know that there were indigenous people living here thousands of years prior to that, um, had their own jurisdictions, their own territories, their own governments, their own land, ma land management systems, uh, and, and, and whatnot. So as the provinces in Canada started to develop the country, um, exploiting the natural resources, building stuff, the railroad across Canada, so on and so on, logging the force. First Nations 
said, hey, wait a minute, this is ours. And the Canadian governments and the provincial governments and territorial governments in different places in Canada said, okay, hang on a second, and we're going to sit down at the table and sort this out. And in some cases across Canada, governments signed treaties with various First Nations that laid out um, who's given who what and so on and so on. British Columbia never signed very many treaties historically. And so that's partly why this legal thing, I'll get into it here, the land question, whose land is it, is because British Columbia is one of the jurisdictions that did not enter into very many treaties at at all. Um, there's, I think, 205, if I remember right, um, First Nations, let's think of them as First Nations governments in Canada. So 200, 205, I believe, is is the number. So there were a number of significant landmark Supreme Court rulings um, several decades ago in Canada about this land question. Whose land is it? Uh, there was the Delgamut decision, the Haida decision, the Sparrow decision. And essentially, those court cases, they were Canadian judges applying Canadian law to this question, the land question. And because BC had not signed a lot of treaties, uh, like I said, that they would, they're like a contract. So that would be what a judge would refer, refer to. It's like you're claiming this, but this was in the treaty. So that essentially most nations didn't have those treaties. So what these major Supreme Court decisions brought down uh, was a lot of things, but a couple of key things were that under Canadian law, the judges have said, that First Nations rights and title were never extinguished to the British Columbia government um, or not extinguished by the British Columbia government because there was no treaties that, that you know, like I said, was the new contract to go, to go by. And in that, the courts have said that the First Nations had never ceded their lands, their rights, their title to the BC government, which is what you would do in a treaty. You would keep some things that were yours, and then you would have to agree to hand over some stuff. Uh, so in a lot of cases, when we hear the term on unceded land uh, of a particular nation, that means that that first nation never entered into a legal agreement with the province of British Columbia that said, oh, we're handing this over to you in return for this. So that's kind of where we're at uh, today in a, in a lot of cases. Now, part of these court rulings, uh, Supreme Court judges brought down this thing of duty to consult. Because First Nations rights and title were not extinguished, their lands weren't um, ceded, the courts have said, BC government, you have a duty to consult with First Nations on decisions that may impact their rights and title. And, and that's kind of like as far as it went in the court decisions. 
There wasn't a thou must do it this exact way. So what that whole, all those court rulings have done have created this process in British Columbia's decision-making framework by government is they have to consult with First Nations on just about every government um, decision that's made uh, in, in all areas of our society to see whether or not the impact rights and title of First Nations uh, who have um, strength of claim to a particular area. So if it's not in a particular nation's uh, territory where they've been historically proven that this was their um, their area, a government does need to consult with a nation that's not like directly impacted. So uh, especially when it comes to land and resource type decisions, they're very geographically based. Uh, something like healthcare or, you know, those types of things would could potentially affect all nations uh, everywhere in, in the province. So consultation, um, it was not a smooth road and it still isn't a smooth road for government in this province. Uh, a lot of decisions were arrived at at the end of the process and First Nations didn't agree with the process that government was going to make or that they made and government said, hey, we just have a duty to consult you know, with you. We don't have to change everything that, that you want. So we had more court cases and, you know, and different things. And, and the BC government was kind of like sent back and said like, look, you have to consult, but then if you are impacting rights and title, you got to fix that. Like you got to either accommodate it and change what your plans are so that first nations go, okay, we're good with that now. It's not impacting uh, some aspect of our rights and title, or you need to accommodate it. And in some cases, that's a financial transfer. You know, so if you think about uh, something like a mine, it's permanent. Uh, it is where it is. That that may, in some cases, have led to a financial compensation for something that was taken away from First Nations permanently because of a mine. So. It, it's it's a complicated process, uh, but it it is more than just a government doing its job and then at the end saying to First Nations, so what do you think of this decision? First Nations across the province on a day-to-day basis are working with government and government staff on all these projects and decisions. They have retained experts and biologists and, you know, hydrogeochemical specialists and terrain specialists. And they, the First Nations hire people um, to help them review major projects like the Site C Dam. Um, so, you know, wildlife biologists and geologists and engineers and stuff are working on their behalf, um, reviewing projects. So basically, at the end of the project, when the government makes a decision to permit a project and allow it to go ahead, First Nations have been part of that entire review and decision-making process so that there isn't a large conflict at the end of the decision. Because where some of these conflicts have landed at the end of government decisions is the government and First Nations go to court. And sometimes that takes decades to get through the court system and tens of millions of dollars on both sides um, to go through the courts. 
more often than not, in in my way of looking at things in British Columbia, is that courts have ruled mostly in favor of First Nations. They continue to find time and time again that the government is not doing its obligations to First Nations. It is making decisions that's causing impacts to rights and title. There was a very famous one just a couple of years ago called the Yehi decision, named after the chief of the Blueberry River First Nations in northern BC, where the court said, hey, years and years and years of the government approving uh, oil and gas and exploration and forestry projects and all these little projects, they've all added up to this significant cumulative impact on the natural landscape, which has impacted the Blueberry River First Nations rights, especially their ability to hunt because it was being harder to find uh, animals with all, you know, this, this impacted landscape. So that kind of sent BC back to say, okay, now you have to figure out how to make a decision that takes into consideration all the other impacts that have already happened on the landscape called cumulative effects. So really nobody wants uh, every one of these government decisions to land in court. It's just, it's a huge time suck uh, and, and, a lot of money gets spent on it. Now, a number of years ago, the United Nations passed, well, the, the countries that were part of the United Nations um, passed a declaration, uh, uh, an, uh, an agreement. Well, that's, what, that's the word I'm looking for here. And it was called UNDRIP, <clears throat> which stands for the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And so there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles or clauses or statements, if, if you want to put it that way, in the United Nations uh, UNDRIP. Uh, it's kind of the acronym for it. They were all the various countries of the world that spent years and years and years saying, what are the rights of Indigenous Peoples? And how should governments everywhere in the world basically conduct themselves so as not to violate the rights of Indigenous peoples? Now, Canada at first did not ratify the United Nations Declaration. Some countries never did. Canada eventually, with some subsequent amendments, ratified the agreement. And what that basically means is Canada said, yep, as a, as a member of the international community, as, as a country, uh, we agree to all of these articles. And, and when a country ratifies an international agreement, like it's not really binding on the country. That's the whole problem we have with the climate change stuff, right? Is, and emission targets or whatnot is it's like there is nobody that says, you know, hey, Canada, you broke the law, uh, you know, on this. It's sort of like it's up to the goodwill of the country to implement what it's just agreed to in front of the other nations of the world. Uh, like I said, there are countries that said, sorry, we're, we're out on this, on the United Nations. Uh, Canada did ratify it. Then under the John Horrigan um, NDP government, uh, while he was premier of the province, uh, the NDP party in British Columbia tabled and passed British Columbia's called DRIP Act. 
So it's British Columbia's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. And it basically, you know, kind of in a nutshell says British Columbia will adhere to and embed the principles of the United Nations Declaration into British Columbia law. Okay. Now, a, a really, really key part of the United Nations Declaration that British Columbia sort of has consented to in its provincial legislation is this thing called the right to prior and informed consent. So that was a principle in the United Nations Declaration, which all the countries of the world that ratified the agreement said, when a government makes a decision in the country, they have a duty to ensure that the Indigenous peoples are have a right to be informed and fully understand what the government decision is. So let's just think of a project. Let's think of a, of a, a hydroelectric dam. So the First Nations have a right to be informed what that is, exactly what it is, uh, well in advance, and they need to understand what it means, given time to understand what it means and what it means to their rights and their title and their ways of life. And they have to consent to that decision prior to the decision being made. So that was a principle prior have Indigenous peoples under the United Nations Declaration have a right to prior and informed consent. They need to know up front, they need to understand it, and they have to be able to say, we're good with it. So now the difference between that, this aspect, consent, agreeing to it, is different than what happens in consultation. So there is a tremendous amount of work done at tables around the province on all types of projects and decisions and stuff where First Nations are working with government to try to get to a decision that First Nations can agree to, that they're, that they're happy with. Uh, and then when they arrive at that place, the government will formally make the decision and issue the permits for a hydroelectric dam. Uh, or if the First Nations are not happy with everything, the government may still forge ahead and issue the permits, but then they have to give a rationale why they didn't um, change to accommodate these concerns with First Nations. Those can still be contested and go to court. Uh, and like I said, that's that has happened uh, and continues to happen to this day. There's things, you know, that are still in the courts right now over government decisions from, you know, years gone past. We just haven't seen those come uh, for a, a, um, a judge's decision yet. So a little bit different. Consultation is a little bit different in the sense that the, that the legal requirement to have prior consent isn't really there. It's just to consult with and accommodate First Nations. Um, so everybody is trying to make decisions in the province and have consent prior to a government decision or a permit or a project being approved, um, but it's not always working that way. So British Columbia is kind of committed to 
<laughs> raising the bar a little bit uh, on this. It's part of the current government's approach to reconciliation is saying, hey, we want to enter into this whole idea of upholding this idea of that First Nations have a right to prior and informed consent. So where that has landed is the BC government wants to, with First Nations that want to, develop agreements that basically say, how is the First Nation government and the BC government going to work together on particular decisions within that First Nations territory. And then those agreements need to have some type of teeth in British Columbia's legislative framework. Now, what they're talking about in these agreements, there could be all sorts of things in the agreements, but around the issue of who gets to decide the ultimate decision-making power for projects. Again, think of a hydroelectric project or a mine. Uh, Who has the ultimate authority at the end of the day to say, yep, I'm approving it and it goes forward. What they're looking at doing here is having a shared decision-making or a consent-based decision-making framework for legislative decisions in the province of BC. So these agreements that the government might develop with a particular First Nations in a particular area of the province for particular types of projects, they might, your First Nations might not be interested in everything uh, that government decisions that made, but they might be saying, hey, this, 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 and this is really important. We wanna enter into agreement for shared decision-making or consent-based decision-making whatever they happen to work out that's in the best interest of everybody. So that's kind of where we're at, you know, right now with this whole thing of the BC um, government amending the Lands Act. Now, let me dive into um, a little, another little rabbit hole here, kind of came out of one. Uh, we'll go back into another one. I want to talk about this concept called framing. And it's particularly applies to politics. It's a political tactic. Let's, let's put it that way. Framing is the way that a politician or a political party or a government might present an issue to the public. Now, because it's politics, this might might be a little bit harsh, but framing to me in politics is walking this fine line between telling the truth and lying. So what you're trying to do as a a politician or a politician-to-be or a, a political party is you're looking to present an issue so that those of us that look at the issue, it makes us think that the issue is something that it's not without actually having to come out and say it. Um, I, this, it might be a little bit hard to get, to get across. So let me give you an example. So uh, I'll go to the United States here. 
years and years ago, one of the administrations in the United States was amending its environmental, one of its environmental laws, and it was to do with um, air quality. Uh, it was a federal law uh, to do with um, emissions from industrial factories and, and whatnot. And so they reworked the environmental air quality law, federal law, and they gave it this name called the Clean Air Act, their Clean Air Bill. Uh, you've probably heard this lots uh, where, you know, there's the official legislation that's being amended, but they, they kind of give it this stage name, you know, like, uh, you know, and, and in this case, it was called the Clean Air Act. And so this is where political framing comes into it. What do you think of when you hear a government has created an amendment to its air quality act called the Clean Air Act? Oh, that's got to be good for the people. Um, less pollution in the air. Um, hold those um, corporate entities accountable for their uh, air pollution emissions that are causing cancer and you know and and all sorts of things. Yeah, that that must be a good thing. The Clean Air Act by the bill that administrated it was actually rolling back environmental laws, allowing industry to be able to pollute more and more freely. But they called it the Clean Air Act. And why did they do that? Because the opposition was going to come forward and attack the administration for this bill. But then the public's going to go, this opposition party is attacking something that's good. The Clean Air Act. Who doesn't want clean air? All us public citizens want to breathe clean air. We want our children to breathe clean air. And these yahoos over here are objecting to it. And by framing it as the Clear Air Act, but the regulation itself was actually allowing more air pollution, is framing. And that's why I said it's kind of this fine line between telling the truth and a lie. They haven't actually come out and called it the Dirty Air Act or the Roll the Air Protection Rules Back Act or whatever, right? Because that would look bad. That's a bad stage name. So they do that in order to go into these political arenas and fight their opposition over it. Uh, and then what they can do is they can marginalize the opponents to the government's bill by saying, hey, look, they don't want the public to have clean air. What kind of people are they? That's not the government you want to elect next time, right? So that's an example of framing. Classic one that's going on in Canada right now is the gun control debate. This is a classic issue of the liberal government framing an issue in order to set the opposition, the conservatives up to fail at the next election. The way gun control is being framed, you've probably all heard this, we want to keep our community safe. Who wouldn't want to keep children playing on the streets safe or on the front yards? Um, not allowed to play street hockey anymore because it's dangerous. But who wouldn't want to keep our community safe. Who would argue against that? Oh, look, that party is arguing against us wanting to take guns off the streets to keep citizens safe. What kind of people are they? Horrible people, right? Don't vote for them in the next election. 
So that's framing. And what political parties and governments in power do as well, like with the gun control, that's that's the liberal government that's in power, is they're creating what's called a wedge issue. And by framing something in such a way that the public reads into it the way they want to read into it, it divides the citizens. It divides this into you're either for us or against us, and it's all designed to garner votes. So this is a huge part of what I have seen so far in British Columbia with this issue of amending BC's Land Act to give First Nations veto powers. I have not seen anything in the proposed legislation about veto powers. This is framing it. It's to make you think about something the way they want you to think about it. So when you first saw this story, when it first came out and you saw the way that the opposition was presenting it, they didn't come right out and say it, like like literally, but was your first reaction when you saw the issue being presented um, by the opposition uh, parties, did you go, oh my God, the government is going to give decision-making powers to First Nations and they're going to evict us off public land, bar people from going on Crown land, and they're going to ban hunting. I won't be able to go on Crown land to hunt. I mean, was that kind of like your initial like sticker shock reaction when, when you saw this story and the way that it was being presented? So <clears throat> I, I've... I've learned to kind of temper my emotions, you know, with stuff like that, uh, especially if it's kind of like, yeah, I kind of want to believe that. <clears throat> I caution myself. I, I step back a little bit and go, I saw something, I took it at face value and immediately, bam, I got a adrenaline spike or cortisol spike or, or, or whatever. And my blood started to boil. I've learned I've got to stop and take a step back and take a very critical look at what is really going on here because if you see something immediately at face value and it elicits elicits that blood boiling emotion that's by design that's what people wanted to have happen by the way that they framed it they didn't literally say it but it was framed in a way that made you believe what what immediately came to your mind. They're going like, yeah, we know that's exactly what's going to pop. First thing that's going to pop into somebody's mind. And that's going to make us look good. And an election's coming in October. And so all parties are looking for these wedge issues to split the public into you either with us or against us. So what is the Lands Act? What is the BC's Lands Act? It's one of hundreds of statute pieces of legislation that we have in the province. Basically, the simplest way I can describe it is the Lands Act is a record-keeping legislation. It's about how the lands branch keeps track of who has what on the land and what activities are allowed to go on on watch pieces of land. 
So let's just think of something very simple of your private property. There's a legal survey that that's your piece of land uh, that your house is on, you pay your taxes on. That legal survey is registered with the government. Somewhere down the road, other legal land surveyors can come and pull that record up. They can go find the pins, yada, yada, yada. This record keeping system says at this boundary right here on the other side of it is your property. So that's kind of like in a nutshell what BC's Lands Acts is about. So now projects like gravel pits, mines, transmission lines, pipelines, um, trappers' cabins, outfitters' lodges, um, tourism lodges, uh, ski hills, golf courses, uh, road right-of-ways, all these types of things that occur on Crown land. So it has all all those things, all those projects, in some way, shape, or form, the Lands Act is involved because there has to be like a legal like description of exactly where this thing is on the land, on crown land. Where exactly is the boundaries, the right-of-way of this transmission line or of this highway or whatever? Or where exactly is, is this ski hill's boundaries? Like where are they allowed to conduct their operations and where are they not allowed to go um, willy-nilly like cut a new um, um, ski run sort sort of thing. So those projects make application under the Lands Act and the Lands Act uh, folks uh, say, okay, here's your little square on a map, legal description. Here's your authorization. That's where you're legally allowed to do your thing. Now, the Lands Act can't authorize that individual or entity or whatever it happens to be a corporation to mine the minerals, to log the timber, whatever. They're not allowed to, it's called dispose of the crown resources. They can't dispose of the timber. They can't dispose of the mineral or the coal or the water. They're simply saying that this other agency under the authority of the Mineral Tenure Act, the Mines Act, the Forest and Range Practices Act, the Forest Act, whatever, has approved this applicant, this project, this company, this individual to develop this gravel pit on this piece of land. Now the Lands Act um, kicks in and officially draws a square around that and registers it in the public record that on this piece of land, these boundaries, this square, this company has a tenure that's authorized by a permit under the Mines Act to dig gravel out under all these other various conditions that would be permitted. So so that's the Lands Act. So now the second way that I've seen this issue that's before us right now of the BC government amending this Lands Act to include First Nations decision-making in it is it's being framed like that this is a, um, what's the word? Like this is a an attack on democracy. It's an attack on your rights um, 
a non First Nations person in the province. It's a, it's an attack or or a taking away of your rights because your government that you've elected that has authority to make these decisions on your behalf is handing this power over to First Nations who you haven't elected or are not representing your rights. So that's the way it's being framed. It's being sort of, in my opinion anyways, this is what I'm gleaning from from this, that it's this either or sort of thing. It's like there's the BC government and in a democracy, they make the decisions, right? That's the democracy. You have rights too. What are they doing handing over that decision-making power or the ability of First Nations to veto, to nix government decisions, right? Um, it's not that simple in this province. So let me give you some examples. The BC government, the provincial government, and its statutes are not the only level of authority to make decisions in this province. There are municipal governments that have authority under the Municipal Act to make decisions, issue permits, review applications and whatnot for things inside their jurisdiction, a municipality. There's regional governments. The federal government has power over or authority to make decisions on some aspects of federal law in the province. There's federal environmental laws to do with pollution and mining. There are federal laws to do with uh, fisheries and oceans and Navigable Water Act. Um, All of these things, endangered species, uh, migratory birds. So projects that um, potentially overlap into those areas, the federal government's involved. Regional governments, municipalities. There's this thing in BC called the Agriculture Land Commission. They are an appointed body at arm's length to government. Officials are appointed by government. There's 19, I believe there's 19 commissioners on the Agriculture Land Commission. Their job is to review applications and changes to uses of the land in the ALR, in the Agriculture Land Reserve. It's where the land, the most productive land in the province has been designated, ALR, that's where we grow our food. If you want to take that away and turn it into a housing project or a gravel pit or a golf course, you go through the Agriculture Land Commission. They have huge, huge powers to dictate what goes on on the land of British Columbia in either keeping or taking land out of food production. So there's a lot of layers of decision-making. And a lot of times, projects actually involve every single one of these layers of government. Somebody comes along and says, I want to develop a gravel pit. That's my business. I want to provide gravel to the company down the road that makes um, uh, concrete. So it's very possible they're going to have to go through provincial applications, reviews and approvals, municipal government approvals, regional government approvals, federal government approvals, and possibly through the Agriculture Land Commission. Sometimes the regional government and the Agriculture Land Commission are both vetting the same 
thing about a land use in the ALR. It, it's complicated. It's a whole discussion unto itself. So, so the point here is that if you're hearing this concept of these changes of giving First Nations <clears throat> powers uh, under the Lands Act is this either or thing. It's either the BC government who represents the people or it should represent all people in BC, non, non-Indigenous and Indigenous people, and they're giving that away to just the Indigenous part of, of uh, the decision-making, just the Indigenous uh, interest. I'll sort of caution you on like coming to that conclusion because uh, like I was just explaining, it's already complicated with all the various levels. So what's happening here is under the auspices of BC's Declaration of Rights and Independent Act and the spirit of reconciliation, making things better with First Nations, is the BC government wants to recognize First Nations through its own laws as essentially as a legitimate form of government with legal standing that has some authority to make or contribute to government decisions. Now, again, that's a whole topic. You can sort of debate whether that should or shouldn't, um, you know, be the case. And that's fair. Those, those are legitimate arguments. But this is the path that this province is taking, and this nation is going to probably go in the direction as well. Um, at the federal level, you're going to start seeing... Um, changes to federal statutes, let's say like the Federal Environmental Assessment Act, the Federal Species at Risk Act, are probably at some point in the future going to get amended so that there's going to be First Nations decision-making embedded into that. So when the Federal Minister of Environment is charged with reviewing the recommendations on the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada to whether it's going to designate um, mountain caribou in BC as being federally protected species at risk under the law, that decision at some point in the future will probably be a joint decision that's made between the federal minister of environment and a designate of First Nations uh, as well. It'll be like a joint decision or a consent-based decision. So what's likely going to happen in BC with the Lands Act is uh, just about every piece of legislation in British Columbia has some part of it that says if there is a decision to be made under this piece of legislation, it's the minister, the minister who has the powers to make this decision. The ministers don't really make the decisions. They actually have granted their decision-making powers to people within government who are called statutory decision-makers or SDMs. They are the people who have the power vested in them by the minister to weigh all of these considerations of policy and law and all this sort of stuff, balance all, all the completing, competing interests, uh, and arrive at a decision from the government that's sort of like speaking for the minister. Um, so, What's going to happen is the legislation's going to be changed. So where it says something along the lines like um, the 
minister shall make a decision about a hydroelectric dam that protects the environment and um, considers the interests of all British Columbia, something like that. So again, the minister is going to hand that off to a statutory decision maker. The acts are probably going to be changed. There's going to be something along the lines like the minister and a First Nations official designated under a particular agreement will make a decision about this thing under the act about the hydroelectric dam. And again, I'll come back to it. There's two aspects of First Nations decision making that's going to be embedded into the Lands Act. It could be um, co-decision making or it could be consent-based decision making. This has actually kind of already happened in the province. Uh, it's kind of gone under everybody's radar. So the British a couple of years ago, the British Columbia government and the Tall Ten Central Government in Northern BC signed an agreement. And it's a co-decision making or a shared decision making model for reviewing and approving new mines in Tall Ten Territory in Northeastern BC. Tall Ten Territory covers about 11% of the entire area of the province. Uh, it's part of the what's called the Golden Triangle is in Tall Ten Territory. There's the Red Crest Mine. There's like some some big mines uh, up there, worth a lot of money to both the Tall Ten, their employment, their people, and um, to the province, uh, you know, economically. So, but Tall Ten were concerned about wildlife and hunting and water and fish and all this kind of stuff. So there's this agreement that Tall Ten Central Government and BC Government shall review these mining projects and make joint decisions about how the project is going to be permitted, if the project is going to be permitted, what conditions might be imposed on a mine to protect the environment, should it be approved, those sorts of things. So there are things in at play right now in government that in order for this agreement with the Tall Town Central Government to have sort of like to be a legitimate co-decision-making model, um, there has to be changes to the Mining Act, to the BC Environmental Assessment Act, so on and so on, to, to answer questions like, how does First Nations traditional knowledge get incorporated into an environmental assessment? Because um, it just talks about science and law and, you know, and, and data and, you know, th these sorts of things. Um, how is the decision going to be made? Who's going to be made it? Uh, if the two decision makers can't agree, what's the process to reach a decision? All those sorts of things. So there has to be some changes to British Columbia's mining legislation, environmental assessment legislation, um, the Environmental Management Act as well, to sort of move towards this shared decision-making model for mining in Tall Tan, um, Tall Tan Territory. Now, eventually all of BC's statutes are going to have to be changed to accommodate this um, shared or joint decision-making or consent-based decision-making um, agreements. It just happens to be starting with the Lands Act. This is the one that's been kind of made public. So just to come back and reiterate, this is about projects and tenures and permits to occupy and do things on Crown land. This, as I see it, for based on my research, is nothing in the form of the way the issue's being framed of handing over 
powers to First Nations who are then just going to start changing the laws on who can use Crown land or not. Um, that's simply not what I have found researching, you know, this topic. They're not being given a veto power. So a veto power is when a, one level of government or somebody has a higher level of authority over another. So the language here is joint decision or shared decision-making or consent-based decision-making. It's not about making one government more powerful than the other, because that's what we already have, actually. If you're, if you're a First Nations person, you're going, well, that's the model we live in. Your government gets to make all the decisions. If we don't like it, we got to live with it. Uh, or we've got to come up with $10 million to go to court to say, hey, your decision uh, is affecting our rights. So... Again, this this word veto has popped out there, and I think that's part of the political framing. It's it's trying to make you think, oh my God, First Nations people um, don't like me as a non-First Nations permit, so they're going to use this power to take stuff away from me. So um, that that's you know this is kind of the lens uh, you know that I'm I'm developing here, having dug into this. So you know. Co co decision making or shared decision making, like I said, I don't think it's too far different than what's already taking place with consultation. Both sides are working together to get to the end where a decision has to be made. Does this project go forward? Yes or no. If it doesn't, uh, what conditions or changes do they have to do to keep everybody happy? And that's kind of what's already happening with the consultation process. Like I said, it's, it's, it's a lot more consultation is a lot more than just the government at the end going, Hey, so what do you think of this decision we're about to make? You like it or not? Um, it, it's people sitting at the table for years and years and years and years actually working through some of these large complex uh, projects. And a lot of times some of these really good projects, they reach the end and it's a really easy decision for the statutory decision maker because years and years of work, they fixed all of the issues and impacts to and concerns of First Nations people um, who have consented to the project to go forward. Like, you know, there it's, you know, part of the framing is, you know, I think maybe is that people are being given this picture that First Nations want everything on the land base stopped, which I don't fully believe is true. Um, some projects, yes, some not. Now, I don't know this for sure, but one of the ways in which this, this joint decision-making or co-decision-making model could unfold in British Columbia's legislation is a lot like what I described earlier with municipal, regional governments and the Agriculture Land Commission in the sense that if a project is to go forward, one of the things that a project proponent has to do is they have to get their Lands Act tenure, they have to get their water license tenure approval, they have to get their Mines Act approval, they might have to go to a municipal government and get approval for them to do the project inside the municipality or the regional district or take a little piece of agriculture land reserve in order to do the project. They may have to then go to the First Nations and say, we need 
a permit for you. And First Nations might go, okay, make an application to us. We want to see this information. What are you planning? What are your contingency plans? Show us some maps. Uh, we'll have our experts look over it. We got some questions about uh, groundwater, um, water quality, fish habitat, you know, uh, wildlife habitat, all, all these types of things. And if they go through that review process and First Nations may be given the ability to say, these are our rules, um, just like a municipality has its own rules for developing something like a gravel pit that can be different in the municipality than the Mines Act requirements for a gravel pit. But an operator of a gravel pit has to meet both government's requirements in order for the gravel pit to get fully permitted. Because if you need 10 permits and you got nine, your project doesn't go forward. You got to get all the permits that are required. So it's possible that that could be the model. It could be the model where First Nations become like a form of a municipal government or a, a regional district government in the sense that they are another uh, layer uh, of decision making and permitting and, and, and a process that an applicant's an applicant's going to have to go through for for a project. Now, industry, this scares industry because um, they're like, oh, my God, it's already complicated in British Columbia. Now I got to go through another level of government and years and years and all this additional information. I got to do all these additional things that are going to cost me more money, yada, yada, yada. So industry is going to push back against that as well. Um, now, it, this isn't necessarily automatically a bad thing if this is the model that get implemented in the province. So let's just think of something like like the endangered caribou in the province. We hear almost every week in the news where the BC government is continuing to allow and approve logging of old growth logging in the endangered caribou's habitat. So just think about a you know, uh, a point in time where in order for the forest company to get approval to log in there, they've got to submit their logging applications to the Forest Service, who are going to review and approve them under the authority of the Forest Act and the Forest and Range Practices Act and the Lands Act uh, and the Water Act. And uh, First Nations are going to go like, great, now you got to make application to us in order to get your logging permit or your cutting permit. Um, but these are our logging rules that apply to logging projects and oh hey you're an endangered caribou habitat sorry we're going to reject your application so if you care about wildlife and you care about what's going on going gosh if they could just leave endangered caribou habitat alone and go log somewhere else why do they keep allowing that this might be a good thing for people who care about wildlife um, to have you know, another layer of rules on critical things like endangered species habitat in the province and another layer of approvals and permitting. So that's just an idea I've had in, I've had in my head how shared decision-making could possibly uh, unfold in, in the province, not to say that it is. Now, with all of this said, like, I'm not endorsing this. I'm not naive to the fears that are out there, particularly in the hunting community in British Columbia, about access to crown land to hunt and opportunities to hunt. They're real. There are real things going on in this province that are making 
licensed hunters scared about the future of hunting. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty about what our kids are going to be allowed to do, what we may be allowed to do even in a few years from now. There have been altercations between hunters and First Nations in various parts of the province. I've had people call me directly and tell me about things that have happened, altercations. Um, I mean, some really serious stuff, folks. Like, you know, there's there's some bad things, you know, going, going on, um, you know, in, in the woods. And these are conflicts between individuals, not necessarily between governments uh, and resident hunters. But in some cases, it has been. And we've seen road blockades that have been implemented at the government level, First Nations government levels in the province. There was some in the central interior years ago around the Williams Lake area. Uh, I talked earlier about when the Yehi decision came out about um, the Blueberry River First Nations and the government was supposed to go away and figure out how to make decisions without layering on top of the impacts that were already in the Blueberry River First Nations area. And a couple years ago, we had that huge controversy where the government said, oh, um, the way we're going to fix all that is we're going to eliminate thousands of moose hunting tags and caribou tags in northeastern BC. And people went through the roof over that, mostly because people said, what the hell does that have to do with logging and oil and gas development that the judge said that's the problem. And now you're over here taking um, hunting licenses away from resident hunters. And some of the First Nations came out and said, hey, don't get mad at us. That's not what we asked for in this decision, right? So that's happened. And that's got, and and it's stuck. That's actually real. Thousands and thousands of hunting uh, hunters in the province are not going to have access to moose and caribou in northeastern BC because of the decisions that were made to cut back on on moose permits uh, a few years ago in the north or go to go to the uh, LEH system. So this is real. This is a real fear of resident hunters, and I and I and I and I share that. Uh, I get reports from people that are sitting at various roundtables in the province, and they're hearing messages from some First Nations communities, not all, um, that they think there's too many resident hunters in their territory. Their hunters are saying there's too many licensed hunters there. You need to get out, get out of our territory. Um, but then there's nations that have a vested interest in guide outfitting businesses that want the big money from resident hunters. Um, these things are real. I'm not naive to that. And the fear that's embedded here when they're seeing changes to the Lands Act to incorporate First Nations decision-making into it, um, I don't, I don't uh, have any like bad thoughts about people uh, if you're thinking that more of, you know, lost hunting opportunity, access to private land is somehow, you know, embedded in uh, what's happening here. And it very may well be, um, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly happy with the current approach in British Columbia to managing hunting uh, and wildlife management. So I'm not naive to think that there isn't possibly something embedded in this decision um, to change, you know, the various acts in the province to accommodate um, the Declaration of Rights of in 
uh, Indigenous Peoples Act that could, down the road, take something away from resident hunters. Uh, One of the acts that's going to have to be changed to accommodate BC's Declaration and Rights of of Indigenous Peoples Act is the Wildlife Act. And in the Wildlife Act, there the minister has authority to make decisions about how hunting tags will be allocated in the province. The province has a policy that says the priority for issuing opportunities to harvest animals based on health of the animal populations is First Nations rights come first, resident hunters' rights come second, and third comes non-resident hunters and outfitters. So, yeah, if people are scared that a shared or co-decision-making authority under the Wildlife Act could be a way in which that policy gets influenced more so resident hunters and outfitters get less and less and less, um, I don't know, it could happen because we've already seen it happen in this province. The example of cutting back on moose and caribou tags made no sense to anybody. It was a government decision, like I said, that First Nations went, hey, this isn't what we're asking for. And it was done. And we're living with it now. Less hunting opportunity because of it. So those fears are real. I, I you know, I believe. Now, some of the criticism I've seen uh, about this move by the BC government to uh, make these amendments to the Lands Act um, is people are saying, well, how do you make First Nations accountable to all of the public? If they get to help make these decisions or they have veto powers, like is the, is the narrative, like how are they accountable? They're not being elected like we elect our governments to make decisions in our best interest. One of the criticisms was over this thing that happens in the province called impact benefit agreements. So a big industrial natural resource company that say like mining that may um, impact First Nations in its area with a mine may actually, outside of all government approval projects, enter into an agreement with First Nations to say, if you consent to allowing this project to go through the government permitting system, we will give you a cut of the royalties or X amount per year from our mining operation. Huge revenues for First Nations to do all kinds of stuff, housing projects, education projects, like it's, it's their revenue for their, for their, for their people. Right. So the, one of the criticisms I've seen is like, well, how can you have a First Nations government that sits at the table to make a decision about when this project goes forward when the company has already said, if the project gets approved, here's an impact benefit agreement where we'll, you know, give you 10% of the royalties from, from this project. And I can agree, like, you know, people pointed that out. Yeah. But that's exactly how our provincial government works with every one of its decisions, because the government approves projects in order to one, protect the uh, environment, create, um, uh, employment opportunities, but also it's the revenue stream from the royalties and the taxes 
that the government needs to run the province. Healthcare, education, highways, infrastructure, all this kind of stuff. So yeah, the BC government is doing exactly the same thing. It has to review and approve a project at the end of it, knowing that it's going to add X amount of millions or billions of dollars to the government coffers. That's just the way it works. Um, So I I don't necessarily see that criticism of a First Nations government that might have an impact benefit agreement. Maybe that needs to change so that the the royalties are coming through the crown, not from the private corporations themselves, because I do agree there's the possibility of corruption uh, there when you have the payments being made from private entities to private decision makers, you know, so to speak. So let's just kind of avoid that, that sort of thing and maybe change um, the way uh, the economic value from these approved projects are shared uh, to between uh, BC and First Nations government. So, and you know, you know, the question about, you know, who, how are First Nations accountable, who's, they're making decisions based on, you know, their own interests. Again, all government int- uh, decisions are being made in the best interest of the government or the party in power. And I think you'd have to be naive to think that a tremendous amount of government decisions about especially big mega projects are not tied to in the best interest of the party that's in power of making it. So they get reelected. Look, we created 10,000 new jobs. Uh, oh, geez, elections coming up, you know, you know, that sort of stuff. Politics is politics. So. You know, kind of, you know, a bit coming to a close here. I realize this has been been long. I hope this has been helpful, you know, to you. Kind of a lot of it's just sort of, you know, kind of a big brain dump here. But, you know, like I said a few minutes ago, you know, I'm not overly myself. I'm not overly happy with the current state of affairs uh, with hunting and wildlife management in in BC. Um, You know, I can't say that the current model of just BC government officials making all these decisions has given us the best state of affairs for hunting and wildlife management in the province. So I'm maybe a little bit at the point kind of where I'm, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm willing to try something different because First Nations care about wildlife. They care about the environment. Uh, some of them, you know, care about us being able to come and hunt and, you know, feed and inject some money into their economy as you know as well it's not it's not all bad stuff you know in in my way uh, of looking at it and maybe this whole thing is going to take us down a path that is actually better for wildlife and, and hunting in this province so i don't necessarily think right now we need all this hysteria um, that First Nations are somehow going to be given these veto powers and they're going to kick us all off, you know, the, the land. And that word veto power, like it, it, it's a framing thing, but it immediately kind of makes you think about U.S. elections. You know, when Trump got in like several years ago, it was like his first day in office is he's signing off all these executive orders going, I'm canceling this, I'm changing that, I'm doing this. And then when the Biden administration, you know, took over, the first thing they're using is their veto powers to say, it's an executive order and I'm canceling this thing that the previous administration's doing, like just stroke of the pen, boom, laws are changed. Um, that's where at least I hear this whole idea of veto powers coming from U.S. presidents and, and their government systems. And uh, yeah, I just don't think like we need to be at that point of, of 
you know, hysteria here over this in BC uh, quite yet. Uh, we are coming into an election, so I'm like, I'm also not naive to not go into this with eyes wide open to these wedge issues uh, and what we might lose um, by some of these pre-election decisions uh, for hunters and for wildlife in the province. Um, coming up to election, governments in power will do anything to get votes to get re-elected. That's why we lost the grizzly bear hunt. It was an election issue. Got a party into power um, because of it. Uh, but I'm also eyes wide open that the opposition parties are going to do and say anything that they can to discredit the government in power to get the vote to shift to them prior to an election. So I'll leave your political uh, affiliations and leaning in which ways you want to vote in, uh, you know, the upcoming elections to yourself, how you want to interpret these things. Uh, but I'm just kind of trying to really be balanced here to look at this whole giant picture, which is, uh, is really blowing up in, in the British Columbia uh, news and in the hunting community as well. At the end of the day, what I want to see personally in hunting and conservation is for the arguments that are out there, the conversations that are out there in the public discourse are fair, they're accurate, and they're truthful. Because here at Blood Origins, we're about conveying the truth about hunting. So I hope this helps. This was an hour monologue, an hour episode, but it's a big issue. I didn't want to come out earlier and start blurting stuff out about this and not have my thoughts in place uh, and to be able to look at this objectively from both sides or all the sides uh, and just give you my thoughts. Uh, I hope this helps. Uh, I hope this rambling and these helps you see the problem uh, or, or this issue, the way it's being unfolded. And I mean, however you want, whatever side you want to take on it, like 100%, that, that's so cool. Like, I mean, apply what you know and what you feel and what your gut and your heart is telling you uh, and make, your, make those thoughts known. Uh, speak from the heart. Because right now, this issue is open on the BC government's Engage BC website, and you can go make comments about this. So speak from the heart, um, but speak truthfully about the comments that you live, uh, that you leave, you know, and be fair, be truthful about what you're saying. I'm just hoping all of this gives you a little bit of perspective or maybe shines the light on this a little bit differently, uh, gives you, um, you know, a bit of an opportunity to reflect or think critically about this issue as well. So let me know what you think folks, uh, about this episode. Uh, it's a pretty deep dive, pretty important issue for British Columbia, uh, and hunting, uh, the future of hunting in this province and the future of wildlife management in this province as well. All right, folks, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we will see you in the next episode. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'm old there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.